listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by Dr. James Buchanan Wallace to talk about Smithereens, the second episode of the fifth season of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2019. James Buchanan Wallace, known to his friends and colleagues by his nickname Brew, is professor of religion at Christian Brothers University, where he also chairs the Department of Religion and Philosophy. He is the author of Snatched into Paradise, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, Paul's Heavenly Journey in the Context of Early Christian Experience, published in 2011, and co-editor with Carl Wilhelm Niebuhr and Pedrog Dragutinovich of the volume The Holy Spirit and the Church According to the New Testament, published in 2016. With Athanasios Despotis, Brew is co-founder and co-chair of Biblical Exegesis from Eastern Orthodox Perspectives, a program unit of the Society of Biblical Literature. His research interests include the Greco-Roman and Jewish religious contexts of the New Testament and the history of the interpretation of New Testament writings, especially the letters of Paul and the Eastern Church Fathers. Most recently, he's been writing about and assessing modern Eastern Orthodox Christian biblical scholarship. Now, Brew has been my colleague at CBU since I started there in 2015, and he's been my department chairperson for most of that time, but I am happy to report that he is also a very dear friend. Having had an up-close and personal view of some highly dysfunctional departments, I cannot brag enough about working with and for Brew. He is consistently and fearlessly supportive. He's super effective without micromanaging. He always shows genuine interest in whatever I'm working on or whatever new projects like this podcast I've taken up. He's refreshingly open to new ideas. He handles disagreements with grace and aplomb. And as far as I can tell, he doesn't hold grudges. Or if he does, he doesn't show it. And as I've said often to other people, it is an actual joy to run into my chair in the hallways, or at least it was back when I was on campus and regularly traversing hallways. So Brew has been an absolute breath of fresh air in my professional life, and I feel very, very fortunate to call him a friend and colleague. He's also wickedly funny and smart. So I am so happy to have Brew as a guest for this, the very last episode of this Black Mirror Reflections podcast, or at least the last episode until a new Black Mirror season is released. And I can't wait to hear what he has to say about smithereens. So welcome, Brew. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, let me reciprocate the, the sentiment that it is an absolute joy and pleasure to learn from you. And I've learned so much about teaching from you. And I really uh, appreciate that and your creative pedagogy. So it's really a joy and honor to work alongside of you and to have you invite me to contribute to this series. Okay, well, let's just jump right in because I know you have a lot to say and I have so much to ask you about this episode. So as you know, at the beginning of every one of these episodes, I ask my guests to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to talk about. So could you just summarize Smithereens? Okay, Chris Gilhaney is working for a rideshare company and waiting outside the London office of a social media company called Smithereens. He picks up a woman coming out of smithereens, but it turns out she does not work there. Later, we see Chris at a support group meeting for people experiencing grief, where he meets Haley, who wants to understand why her daughter killed herself. She and Chris have a one-night stand, 
And we learned that she's convinced that if she could get into her daughter's persona account, yet another social media service, she could find out why her daughter took her own life, that she can't figure out the password. Then Gilhaney is back, parked outside smithereens again. And this time he picks up Jaden. And Jaden does work for smithereens, and Gilhaney kidnaps him. But when Chris stops to change cars, which is when Jaden actually realizes he's being kidnapped because he's been looking at his phone the whole time, it turns out that Jaden is just an intern who's still working in his first week at the company. But now it's too late. The kidnapping is in progress. Chris tries to force Jaden into the trunk of his car, but ends up letting him ride in the back seat with what appears to be a pillowcase over his head. Once outside of London, this draws the attention of some police officers, and Chris, having just swerved around some bikers, drives his car into a field. And so a standoff begins between him and the police. As it turns out, Chris is holding Jaden hostage as leverage to get to talk to Billy Bauer, the founder of Smithereens. And of course, everyone speculates that Gilhaney wants money until they look into his background and discover that he's been an IT teacher who suddenly went silent on social media in the wake of his fiance's death in a drunk driving accident. Then the rather goofy negotiator decides that Gilhaney is really psychologically motivated by a kind of envy of Bauer and need to get Bauer's attention. Now, as we're learning this, the people at Smithereens are trying to get in touch with Bauer, who, it turns out, is on a 10-day silent retreat. So the founder of Smithereens is on tech detox. And when we meet him, he's in Utah in Furnace Valley in the middle of nowhere in a small glass house meditating. But when he learns that Gilhaney wants to talk to him, he insists on doing so. His company does not want him to, but he invokes what he calls God mode and uses his laptop to get Gilhaney's number and call him. And they talk. And Gilhaney reveals that what really happened the night his fiance was killed was partially his own fault, or so he thinks. They were driving home at night. His fiance fell asleep on the passenger side and Chris was bored. Then a notification popped up on his phone. He looked at it and that's when the drunk driver hit them. So Chris Gilhaney, it turns out, is convinced that this was really first and foremost his fault. So while not denying his own responsibility, he also tells Bauer that he knows these social media apps are made to be addictive, which Bauer affirms. And Bauer says he never meant it to get so out of hand, but the company grew beyond his personal control. But Gilhaney cuts him off. Gilhaney says that he said his piece and that's it, and Bauer can do what he will. Now it becomes clear that Gilhaney is going to kill himself or commit suicide by cop. Bauer begs Gilhaney to let him do one small thing. And the one small thing Gilhaney asks is that Bauer reach out to Persona and help Haley get access to her daughter's account, which Bauer does. The conversation with Bauer over, Gilhaney keeps his promise and cuts Jaden's hands free. But then Jaden refuses to leave the car. He's also trying to convince Gilhaney not to kill himself. And while Gilhaney puts his gun down, Jaden tries to grab it to prevent Gilhaney from killing himself. There's a struggle. The police don't know exactly what's going on and decide they need to fire to prevent the hostage from being killed. So a shot is authorized from the police sniper. It fires. Clearly something somewhat grim has happened, but we do not know what. Yeah. Okay. And can I just tag on to that, that 
in the credits, we see various people in society getting these notifications on their phone. You know, there's a person walking through the mall. There's a couple of guys playing basketball and they sort of see it and scroll right past it. So whatever tragic, and we know something tragic has happened. I mean, it cuts to black at the gunshot at the end of the episode, but we know someone has died, but we don't actually know what the resolution or at least the final act of this drama has been but whatever it was it's treated with the same kind of blithe half interest that most of us scroll through news stories with okay so i want to start off with a question that i think is maybe the most obvious question for someone like you talking about smithereens which is that it seems to me that this episode is set up for us to really think about technology as a new religion. That is an interesting way of putting it, because this is certainly, of all the episodes, as far as I remember, all the Black Mirror episodes, there is no episode that so explicitly engages religion as smithereens. Yeah. I don't think there's any other Black Mirror episodes that engage religion. As a matter of fact, Just a couple of episodes ago on this podcast, I was talking to Eric Steinhardt about Bandersnatch, and he mentioned that there's no religion in Black Mirror, and I had never really noticed that. But this definitely is an episode that explicitly engages religion. So yeah, I want to hear what you have to say. So I think that the primary way religion and tech interact in the episode is really in a more antagonistic way that I'll draw out in a moment. But certainly, if we think of religion in the broad sense, right, if we think of religion as that which is an unseen ultimate in our lives that determines how we organize time, space, what we do, what we perceive, and how we perceive it, then certainly the technology and social media takes on that kind of organizing role for people's lives at some level. On the other hand, of course, we see this suggestion that precisely technology and social media are the threats to any kind of interior or religious life. So the obvious example being Bauer himself, who's the founder of this tech giant, who's out in the middle of nowhere in this weird glass house, I'm I'm really interested where the bathroom is, but that's, I guess, another, <laughs> another story. Um, you know, anyway, he's out in this weird glass house meditating to get away from the monster he's helped create and trying to, you know, detox from the technology using this kind of popularized version of a traditional spiritual discipline, presumably some kind of uh, Buddhist or Eastern Hindu meditation practice. So in some ways, I think the presentation of technology as antagonistic to a religious or spiritual or interior kind of life ends up being a bit of a red herring. It's far from the only force in the episode that distracts and co-ops people's attention and prevents them from being able to focus and give attention to other human beings. And it also does not exclude the possibility of people connecting with other human beings. In fact, to me, that's one of the things that fascinates me about the episode is that once you think about the complexities of the characters and their dynamics and what's going on, 
is the issues here go so far beyond the tech, the, the obvious questions around technology and social media. And social media in several moments is talked about more as addiction than religion. Again, there's that antagonism, both in Christian and in you know, Buddhist practice. Spiritual disciplines and practices are about liberating ourselves from passions, desires, compulsive thinking, and so forth, right? Then the tech would be antagonistic to that. It's one of the things that we get addicted to and drives us to use it kind of, you know, over and over and over. But in the end, even that is not really the main opposition in the show. So I think there's a little bit of tech as the new religion that organizes our lives and tells us what to see and how to see it. But I wouldn't push it too far either because it's talked about in a lot of different ways. And certainly addiction is one of the main metaphors, not surprisingly. If I could just push back a little bit. So as an adult, I do not consider myself a religious person. I actually grew up in a deeply religious household. I'm a preacher's kid, but I don't consider that an organizing force in my life anymore. And I do know that sort of from the outside looking in, that this parallel between religious practices as we see them now and technology as a kind of new religion, both in the sense that you just said, as a way of organizing space and time and manufacturing and sorting meaning of the world, but also in the sense of instilling in us a, a sense of there is someone or something else out there that has a better knowledge of our inner lives than we ourselves have and to whom we might be accountable or who could hold us accountable. And I'm leaving out the whole kind of really obvious way that Billy Bauer, the tech entrepreneur or the tech CEO in this episode is definitely like present. I mean, he's wearing a white robe. He's on a, a spiritual retreat. He looks like a guru or a religious leader. And right, or, a, or a faux Jesus in bad sandals. Yeah, yeah totally. A hundred percent. When he says what this has become is not what I intended it to be. The meaning structure that this originally was has been taken up as a technology, as a practice, as a religion, and has become something else. It's become its own monster. So I do think that that parallel is actually maybe more parallel. What I hear from you is you want to see it as more antagonistic between technology and religion. But can I just ask you this? Sorry, that was a long setup. But can I just ask you, would you consider religion a technology? That's a very good question. And I think I would be hesitant because of the very problems of defining religion in the abstract, that is abstracted from an actual lived religion. I would have a difficulty answering the question saying that religion is a technology in the abstract. I think that most religions, most of the things that we in common parlance call religions, and all examples that I know do include what we could call technologies of the self. Right? Mm-hmm. They include practices that are designed to shape a self in a certain way. And so in that sense, they are technologies. And in that sense, I, I see your point. I think it's a very interesting observation especially the idea that Billy Bauer, who invokes God mode, and yet can't control what his, if you like, followers have done with it. 
I think it is an interesting parallel. When I was reflecting on the show, that particular analogy is not what I focused on, but I think it's an apt observation. And certainly religions are technologies in that sense that I just described, including practices that are used to shape the self and shape a community in a certain way so that people perceive reality in a certain way or act in a certain way or perceive a different dimension of reality that one could argue is not open to one without those practices. I mean, and that said, of course, none of the characters are presented as maybe religious in a narrow sense. No one's identified with any kind of affiliation. And yet it's undeniably very important. The use of the Buddhist meditation is clearly very important for the show. The very first thing we hear is Chris Gilhaney sitting there listening to this guided meditation. And it's a breath meditation. It's a very common pop version of a Buddhist meditation uh, practice that focuses on breath and learning to observe one's thoughts, right? Let the thought arise, don't judge it and let it go and just learn to watch that life. And then of course, later we see Bauer, as we've already said, out in Furnace Valley doing some kind of lotus position meditation in his robe. So what are these characters trying to do with these techniques? As we've already said, Bauer is trying to detox, or at least ostensibly, he's wanting to get away from this stuff that he himself has created. It's a little harder to understand what Gilhaney is doing. Why is he listening to this? And the most obvious reason would be to deal with the intrusive thoughts about his fiance's death, because very quickly, I mean, it is just a second or two long as the speaker of the guided meditation is about to talk about letting the thought arise and letting it go, we just get this very brief glimpse of Gilhaney on the road where he's going to have the accident. Of course, the first time you watch it, you don't know that's what that is, but that's going to be revealed, right? So it seems like he's trying to have a coping strategy for dealing with these thoughts about his wife. And yet he's clearly already decided he's going to kidnap someone from smithereens. So you can't help but wonder, is he also trying to keep himself calm enough to perpetrate this action, which would otherwise seem to be out of character for him? This later becomes clear. This is a planned, deliberate strategy. He's apparently traded a rideshare identity on the dark web so he can go under a false name and pick this person up. And so this is a strategy. But as we see, he's also a mess. I mean, he just explodes. He falls apart. Maybe this is also a technique so he can keep himself calm enough to do what is really a terrible thing he's doing. I mean, that's another tension to talk about later that to me is part of the human interest of the show is that Gilhaney is so sympathetic in so many ways. And it's the show is so told from his perspective that it's easy to forget how heinous of an act he is doing, right? So what is that practice for exactly? And I think that by itself, and when we see Billy Bauer later, raises some interesting questions about what we're doing with those kinds of religious technologies. Are we using them just as means of coping, coping with our guilt? You know, in their traditional religious structures, those practices are ideally means to a kind of transformation. Ideally, they're meant to lead to a greater openness of the self to other people. In Buddhism, that would be iterated particularly as compassion towards other people who are suffering from their passions. In Christianity, it might be expressed as agape, as love and concern for the neighbor. But the idea is that they transform us to reach outward beyond ourselves. And I think that you have this kind of question emerging, 
what are these practices really just a set of strategies that we use to deal with the vacuousness of our daily lives that we're called up in this kind of, you know, capitalist money-making system, all these themes of routinization and efficiency and optimization that are going to come up as the episode progresses. And we're just trying to find ways of dealing with not really connecting or reaching out to other people. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting that this particular meditation practice he's engaging in via an app that he's (laughs) using, (laughs) you know, he, He's using a meditation app to effectively train his mind. And I I think that you're absolutely right. The sort of primary function of this practice is to calm and soothe his grief about the loss of his wife, but also to prepare his mind for this honestly stressful and horrible kidnapping and murder suicide that he's about to embark upon. One of the things I really love about this episode, this is a little bit of an aside, but one of the things I really love about this episode is the kind of comic relief. Yes. Yes. peppered throughout. And in one of these comic relief moments, Gilhaney has kidnapped Jaden. He finds out that Jaden is just an intern. He's only been there for a week. He's not an important person in the smithereen company that has any kind of access at all to Billy Bauer. And, and he just kind of loses it. He really just goes off on exactly the kind of boomer rant about people looking at their phones. You know, he says, this guy could turn purple tomorrow and it would take you a month to notice, right? You're just swiping your phones and beep, beep, beeping all the time. So you know that he has deep in him this real rage towards tech apps, towards technology companies, generically speaking, but specifically the kind of addictive apps like social Mm -hmm. media apps. Sorry, this is now I'm getting back to my point. So the (laughs) fact that he is using this meditation app as a technique of the self is really interesting to me. So a couple of things. First of all, I too, I mean, especially the second time I watched Smithereens, I found it much funnier than the first time and his explosion. So two little comments about that, if I may. First of all, see, he uses his meditation technique and then just flies off the handle numerous times. This is clearly not working that well. And of course, Bauer is the same way. When he's interrupted from his state, the first thing he says is the F-bomb. So both of these characters, clearly, whenever their meditative state is interrupted, they can't kind of carry it through. All of these things are interwoven in complicated ways. He doesn't just go off on a rant about their phones. He also says, how's anyone supposed to have a sense of hierarchy? Half the people walk out looking like gap year students, right? So he picks up on this kind of reverse hierarchy, whereby the intern who's trying to get started has to wear his suit and he's got to look like what would have been 30 years ago, a man, right? He's got to dress that way. Whereas the other people coming in and out look like gap year students. And then finally, when we get to the founder of the whole thing, he's hardly even clothed. He's in his robe and boxer shorts and sandals. And so it really fulfills what Yohani is saying, but in a very kind of funny way, but also there's something I think, I mean, yes, it sounds like a, a boomerang in a way, But there is something profound because the pressure has gone down the hierarchy. Like, hey, we don't have to dress like professional executives anymore, but a poor intern sure has to if they're going to make their way. And I think that by itself is an interesting. it, It is. It is. But it still is an ordering of the world. Right. That Oh, yeah. That just sort of goes back to what you said originally, which is that this is what religions do. They order the world for us. Part of the problem that Gilhaney is having is that we have all of these practitioners of a religion, which either he just doesn't believe 
or he wants to outright reject. And so he says the world shouldn't be ordered this way. Doesn't make any sense this way. I can't understand the world when interns wear suits and executives wear shorts, right? I think the tech is the religion. I think there's something to that idea, but I think part of the issue for me is that in the end, it is not the, well, I mean, maybe you could say this is the, the issue with religion too. I don't think in the end you can just blame it on the tech as the religion. It is the particular ways people use and pursue the technology within a particular kind of already existing ethos of, well, among yeah. other consumer capitalism and so forth. But if I could- Yeah, back- I mean, I, I want to grant that point, but I assume that you can already see the long game I'm playing here. But, but it's just to say that all of the critiques that are presented in Smithereens of technology could also be said of religions, right? Of religion, yeah. right. Right. So here's, though, the interesting thing, again, if I can back up to this meditation, and this may actually go well with what you're saying, maybe not quite as you intended, but it may go with the the long game you're trying to play here. So Bill Haney has rebelled against his social media life. He had gotten off social media when his fiance died. Before that, he was immersed in it. That, first of all, tells us that Gilhaney actually had more human connection when he was on social media than when he was off it. Clearly, his ability to connect with other people has been harmed by this grief. But more significantly, what's really preventing him from having a richer life in the end, it's not social media. It's not the technology. It's guilt. Yeah. And that's where I say the tech becomes a kind of a, of a red herring, because what is really preventing him from seeing the world and seeing other people is this guilt. He just feels guilt and shame. And it's precisely because I think that the shame, and this is something actually my wife, Thea, pointed out to me, is that for our culture, there's a particular stigma that attaches to being distracted by your phone or your social media. So let's just for a hypothetical scenario. What if he had been driving along that road, getting bored, and simply looked over at his fiance to think how beautiful she was and just kind of got distracted saying, wow, she's kind of dozed off. She's so beautiful. I'm so lucky. And it could have still happened just as easily just from looking over, right? This guilt is, is at some level itself a kind of constructed assignment of blame. But if that had been the reason, would he have felt this level of guilt? Or does he recognize that in our society, there's a certain stigma that's going to attach to the fact that, oh, I looked at my phone. I was distracted by my phone, by this thing that, that buzzed up. So that creates a context of shame and guilt. And those things are what's really stifling his life, not the social media. He was more connected before. I've, I completely agree with you, but I think you might be making my case for me, which is that what religions do is order the world in such a way as to give us an understanding of those things about which we should be ashamed those things that we should fear, those things that we should love, those things that we should obey, those things that we should adore. And technology does that as well. I do think that one of the things that Black Mirror as a series does really well is deal with shame. Like the, the human, just the human phenomenon of shame. But I think that again, on your reading, it does seem to me that You're right. The real problem is shame. He feels ashamed about having broken one of the commandments, which is don't text while you drive. Don't play with your phone while you drive. And I think that you're exactly right to say, 
you know, really what he did was he got distracted while he was driving. And had he been distracted using another technique, like adoring his wife or whatever, he wouldn't have shame about it because it doesn't fall into one of these forbidden practices. But that's, of course, true of all religious systems, right? That we could look at it and say, isn't this ridiculous that this particular practice is something that people feel shame about as opposed to these other practices? I don't know that there's any social system at all that is not going to have certain kinds of shame. Again, this goes back to kind of the question of definition of religion. Does religion properly defined, have to be oriented towards some kind of invisible reality, not necessarily God, of course, that would not include non-theistic Buddhism, things like that, but is basically any society with any organizing principles at all functionally religious. As one of my teachers at Emory would have said, football in the American South, is that a religion? You bet it is. I guess maybe I don't see the episode as a critique of religion as such, as, as technology as a means of critiquing religion. Other than that, maybe critiquing certain ways of being and conceptualizing and practicing being religious, you might say, more so than like religion in any kind of abstract sense. I agree with you. I don't see this as critiquing religion as such. I see this episode as entirely a critique of technology qua religion. And so in that sense, if I were going to restate what it is, the episode is about technology as a big scare quotes, false religion as mimicking religion and as a false religion will inevitably go wrong, will inevitably lead you astray. What I love about the episode and why I like it so much, I think, I find it to be one of the, if not the, most hopeful Black Mirror episodes there is. Okay, that is, I am, I'm going to take that bait. (laughs) (laughs) Good. How is this a hopeful episode? That I can sum up. The way a series of characters come out of themselves and engage in concrete actions of compassion for other people. Yeah. That's the sum. And this is where I say it's complicated. I mean, you want to not like Billy Bauer. I mean, everything (laughs) about that man is set up for you to say, oh my goodness. He's the, the tech guru out meditating to get away from the monster he's created his wealth and success can purchase him the ability to free himself from it in a way normal people cannot. The peons have to be attached to their phones so he can be at the beck and call of the overlords. His status can purchase this kind of freedom. And there he is. He's the incarnation of this upside down hierarchy um, who's been liberated to be a slob and go out and meditate it. Clearly it's not working because he drops the F-bomb first thing. He can't take a little bit of irritation and interruption. I end up liking Billy Bauer. He doesn't know exactly what, but he really tries. He tries. I mean, I think that's one of the little ironies. You know, he says, I'm going to go into God mode, by which he means he's going to use his tech to do everything he can. So there's part of your case for tech and religion. But again, I think you could see that at two levels, not the level he intends, but he does enter a kind of God mode in the best sense when he stops and tries to listen to this guy and empathize and then do something for him. And he does it. Again, we can say it wasn't much. We don't know what's going to happen to Haley. We don't know. But it's certainly within the framework of limited human knowledge, Gil Haney and Bauer are trying to do something for another person. I mean, Bauer could just blow this off, say it's not my problem. There's all sorts of other ways he could go. So maybe his meditation has helped him a little bit. Maybe it does pull him out of himself somewhat. Maybe it's not all bad. That's where I see this kind of in and out. There's not a simplistic narrative. But here's the thing, the hero of the episode, and I'm assuming we can probably agree on this, the hero of the episode is Jane. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. All right. So we're agreed. And he's the one who's still immersed in smithereens. He's the one who has owned his phone in the car. Right. And didn't even know he's being kidnapped. (laughs) Right. Clearly, his engagement with tech does not prevent him from being what probably you and I would agree as a religious person in the best sense, a person who is compassionate, who can go beyond himself to reach out to someone else in their pain and suffering. And he does it in this amazing way. And that's, to me, again, as, a, as an individual interpreter, admittedly reading it as someone who's an, an Eastern Orthodox Christian. And so I'm certainly seeing it, you know, probably through my understandings of agape and charity and compassion for others. That's why it's so important we don't know what happens. Because in the end, what matters morally, spiritually, dare I say it, is that these people do manage to have these moments where they think of others and reach out. And James is just amazing. I mean, he's risking his life for this jerk who kidnapped him. He had an uncle kill himself. And now I'm gonna stop, please don't do it. You just, you don't understand. It's just amazing to me. That's the hope is that, and it doesn't matter how in meditation you are, how caught up in the tech world you are, these people are able to do that. And that to me is hopeful. I just wanted to jump in to say that I completely agree with you. I I don't think that I understood originally what you meant when you said this is a hopeful episode. But if what you meant by that is, This is one of the Black Mirror episodes where we see the best version of humanity. I completely agree with you about that. So much of Black Mirror as a series is tied up with magnifying and amplifying our weaknesses and our faults and our addictions and our bad judgment. And in this episode, it really does show all of the things that we are capable of that are, interestingly, for the most part, non-programmatic behaviors, right? Like not to be too on the nose about it, but that computers just can't do. It takes someone with real life experience, that Levinasian face-to-face kind of moment where compassion and mercy and friendship and all of these things happen. And interestingly, yeah, I agree with you. Also, Billy Bauer even becomes a sympathetic character because he has to step out of himself and see that he himself is also a pawn in a larger game and feel both the guilt of his own complicity and the development and the propagation of that game, but also his ability to say, and he says at one point, after this, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm cutting it off. And there are a lot of those moments in this episode where all of the normal villains of our lives, the tech entrepreneurs, the police, the corporate executives, kidnappers and murderers, all of them are humanized in a way that we see them all as sympathetic, but they're sympathetic because there's human kindness being extended to them by other sympathetic humans in the episode. Yeah, That's exactly right. And that was one of my main points, again, back to my earlier statement about tech being a sort of red herring in this episode. There are so many forces that drive us to not be concerned and compassionate. And tech is only one of them. And it's only when misused, right? It is not, again, is not in and of itself the problem. And the other thing, back to what you were mentioning uh, a moment ago, there is also this kind of criticism of any kind of routinization, right? That's another uh, one of the things that emerges. Gil Haney, whatever his faults, he immediately knows when someone's reading a script to it. When that negotiator starts to do negotiator <laughs> stuff, he calls yeah. him up and says, just get out of here. When Billy Bauer, when they're sending him his expert psych advice and they're sending him his script, I mean, Gil 
Haney immediately knows he's reading a script. He says, just talk to me like a human. You're a human, right? <laughs> right, yeah, just talking like that's what he wants. You know, the only thing is that somewhere along the line, he's failed to understand that it's not only the technology that's prevented the human interaction he wants. It's guilt and shame and all these other forces. And we even see that again layered throughout the smithereens. They're interested in the optics. Like they don't want Billy Bauer getting on there because it could look wrong. They could get legal liability. The police force, at first, they're interested in optics. You know, their first question isn't what's right and what's wrong in this situation. It's, oh, remember, we just messed one of these up. And so let's not have another PR crisis. So there's this constant concern about image. And that's certainly something exacerbated in the age of social media, but it's not a new problem. But but that concern of theirs would be consistent with what we were saying a moment ago, which is that we see these kind of self-corrections being made. We see truly human techniques of the self happening in people who, because of tragic life experiences have had to step out of themselves and evaluate their behaviors. And the beneficiary of that self-evaluation is someone else. So even just in the example that you just used, yes, the police showed up and they're like, look, don't shoot this guy because we shot somebody who was unarmed last time. And that looked bad. That is a kind of self-evaluation, self-reflection. And the beneficiary of that self-evaluation and self-reflection is, of course, the current gunman. Same thing with Jaden. You know, Jaden says, look, don't kill yourself because he's experienced the tragedy of having a family member killing himself. He's like, look, your family, it's going to mess up your family. There are other people that suffer from this. So we really do see painful life experiences of human beings, as you say, being turned into palliative, if not healing kindnesses to others. I think that is part of what's going on in that ending is that not at all, again, I want to be, this is very careful. This is one of those, you know, theological points that can be perverted so easily and in so many ways that what Gilhaney does is implorable and not justified. You know, it's not at all justified because it leads Jaden to this beautiful moment. But nonetheless, it is what you were just saying, that these moments of crisis, catastrophe, and suffering are often the moments that open our hearts and transform us, right? If I can quote one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Ernst Kazemod, he says, you know, measured by human criteria, salvation is fundamentally rooted in disaster, catastrophe, and reckoning, you know, it's not just about our healing, it's about recognizing and grappling with our brokenness and allowing that to be the means to sympathize, love, and connect with other people. Maybe I'm overreading the symbolism, but I'm comfortable with that. That's what biblical scholars do is overread. You know, when the shots fired and everybody kind of looks up and they're looking and there's this straight look, again, however we interpret that, it's got their attention. There's some recognition of the severity and importance of this moment to pull them away. Even those bikers who are having so much fun putting this on social media, you know, they have to stop and look up. And that's where if I can get to my alternative interpretation of the closing sequence. Can I fly my interpretive kite with you for a moment about that? I'm ready. My sense is that for a lot of the show, again, we're being led down this path to at least at some level agree with Gil Haney's boomer-esque 
critique of devices and social media distracting us from real life and from what's around us. And we see it that way. We see the first woman he picks up on her phone, Jaden on his phone, letting himself be kidnapped. When he goes into that restaurant, we just see those people focus on their phone, focus on their phone. That's all there is. And the only place, of course, that ends is when he's with someone else with grief, with Haley. But then to me, that very end sequence, you can interpret it as they're getting the pings about this tragic incident and they're looking at it and moving on. You could also, I think, though, argue that this is a kind of alternative vision. Now, if, if you like, we've been freed from Gilhaney's perspective. This is the real world of how people use social media. We check our phone and then we go play basketball. I look at it, I play a game with my kids. I play baseball with my son and then I check my social media when I'm done. We're distracted by it, it's there, but we don't have to be automatons. Again, it's one way our various problems can manifest, but that's not it. You know, We can look up and see each other and interact. We've been seeing the world of tech and social media through the eyes of this poor guilt-ridden man. And now we're kind of liberated to see it more realistically, maybe. I love this interpretation. This never, this is a great reading. No, I love this. That, yeah, that life still goes on for all of these complaints. And, you know, this, let me just back up for a second. This is the only Black Mirror episode that is located in the present. As a matter of fact, it was released in 2019. It says in the sub bar at the beginning, this is taking place in 2018. Was National Anthem even in the future? Or there, Well, so there are lots of Black Mirror episodes that we could imagine as having taken place in the present. National Anthem, Shut Up and Dance. I'm not sure that any other Black episode actually gives us the year and month that it's taking place. But this one does, and it's taking place in 2018. And since it was released in 2019, you know, the present. So despite all of the criticism of big tech and in particular social media, that it seems to be serving up to us on a platter in this episode, I love this reading that at the end of the day, we still play basketball. We still go on dates. We still go to the mall, right? Like life goes on. And the only person who dies, and we don't know if he dies or not, the only person whose world is over because of tech in this episode is the guy who became obsessed with tech and couldn't just live his life, right? Like couldn't, well, just couldn't move on. And couldn't, you know, or had at some level tried to stop using it, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And let me, especially since you like that interpretation, I have to say, it was Thea that pointed out to me they were all looking up. Not to give Thea credit, you know, we, we now, talked about all these things together. So <laughs> now, now I'm regretting that I don't have another episode of this podcast to do. I would invite Thea on for yeah, sure. Oh, no, yeah. She would be better than, better than I, for sure. For sure. <laughs> hey, listeners, this is your hostess, Dr. J. Please do stick around for a few minutes at the conclusion to this episode with Brew Wallace for some really exciting announcements about the next podcast adventure. Now back to the conversation. As you know, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same three questions. I'm going to ask them to you all in a row and you can answer them all in a row. So the first question is, what do you think the lesson or the takeaway of this episode, Smithereens, is? 
The second question is what worries or concerns you the most about this episode? And then the third question is on a scale of one to 10, with one being nightmarishly dystopic and 10 being utopic, where does the world of this episode fall? All right. So first, what is the lesson? I think what makes this a great episode is it cannot be reduced to a lesson. And so I think that to the degree there is a lesson, we have to enact compassion with the concrete people around us in the moments that present themselves to us. I know that's pretty simple. Maybe that's just the lover of Dostoevsky and me. But in the end, our business is to engage in concrete acts of justice, love, mercy, and kindness to the people around us the actual people we meet who are often jerks and sometimes evil. And that's, that's what creates a connected, fulfilling life. And that tech can distract us. But in the end, it's not the main villain. There are lots of other forces and sometimes even the internal forces such as guilt and social forces such as shame are far more powerful. And they are what are dictating how we interact with the technology. So to the degree there's a lesson, I think that's it. And if it, there's a lesson vis-a-vis tech, it's do remember to look up and look at the people. And if you are broken, let that brokenness lead you to compassion and concern for others rather than bitterness, guilt, and shame. What concerns or worries me the most in this episode is perhaps ironically still the tech. Because we do see the ways here in which tech companies have more information than the police. And maybe in certain settings, that's a good thing. We can certainly think of a lot of ways that could be a good thing in certain kinds of societies. But it is concerning how much information and power and knowledge they have. And it is, I would say, as a parent, it is nightmarish what Haley is going through and feeling like she's somehow locked out from one side of her daughter that is present in social media. How did that happen? Why is that? I mean, that's a really kind of haunting question that lingers in the background of this episode. And I'd say for me as a parent that social media could become an outlet for a side of someone I love that I never get to know and somehow leads that person to sadness and and God forbid self-destruction. And then that there are some people out there who don't actually love my daughter or love my family member who just want them to use their app so that they can make money and so forth and just want to, to use them for that. And yet they are able to pull out some side that I never see. That worries me for sure. So as with the question, on a scale of one to 10, how dystopic is this episode? I'd say somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think of a seven. I mean, that's a pretty optimistic view. It's not utopia, obviously, but there is this hope that human compassion and human decency can ultimately thwart those things that would lead us to devour one another. And that's pretty hopeful that there, there are these you know, human qualities that we can harness and muster in our current society as much, sometimes in certain ways, even more than people in the past societies who you know, didn't have to deal with this technology. Clearly, compassion is not a thing that people in the past had more than we have. We just have a changing society to deal with. And I think it gives us a lot of hope about the potential for 
human compassion. Now, there's some scary elements to the tech and to how knowledge and information are stored and used and the ways we can distract ourselves. But I think it's a pretty hopeful picture. We are where we are and we, we have to learn to live with that. I have to say that you have convinced me over the course of this conversation that it is even more hopeful. I was already, I thought, a really great episode, but I don't think that I saw all the hope that I could have seen in the credit sequence. And so I'm very glad to have gotten that from you. Brew, I'm so glad you were my last guest. This has been such a good conversation and I really appreciate it. I know that you are a more general Black Mirror fan. And so right. I look forward to talking about all the rest of them very loudly in the hallway <laughs> with you. Please. Yes. Yes. I hope we're yeah. back able to do that again. I hope we can hear those doors shutting down the hall as we talk. About <laughs> yeah. So for <laughs> listeners, for listeners, uh, Brew and I are both extremely loud speakers. <laughs> and so when we meet up in the hallway and just talk at what for us seems like a normal volume, we noticed that all the other doors seemed to shut quickly. But again, thanks so much, Brew, for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Lee. It was a pleasure and an honor. Well, podcast listeners, that's a wrap. Over the course of the last three months, we've been able to reflect upon all 22 Black Mirror episodes in this Black Mirror Reflections podcast. I want to take a moment to extend my heartfelt gratitude and appreciation to all of my guests for taking the time out of their busy lives to sit down and Zoom chat with me. And what a stellar list of guests I've had. Shannon Musset, Chris Gilliard, Emin Allred, Adriel Trott, Michael Norton, John Cerrito, T. Nguyen, Jason Reed, Rick Lee, John Danaher, Zandria Robinson, Samir Chopra, Chuck McKinney, Charles Mills, Karen Tonkson, Roman Yampolsky, Eric Steinhardt, John Tory, and Brie Wallace. You were all insightful, provocative, patiently indulgent, often hilarious, and always deeply thought-provoking interlocutors. And I owe each and every one of you a drink. For future reference listeners, you can find the entire archive of Black Mirror Reflections podcasts at my blog, readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. Just click on the Black Mirror Reflections tab on the top menu, and you'll be taken to a page with a list of each episode's recording and links to the notes for each episode. This podcast has been a real salve for my pandemic isolation, and I have to admit, I'm a little sad to see it end, or at least temporarily end. I do promise to revive it if another season of Black Mirror is ever released, but that possibility is looking more and more unlikely. I want to say that once I got going and I realized how much fun these conversations were, I probably would have just kept going with Black Mirror Reflections, even if nobody was listening. But my podcast analytics tell me that there have been quite a few of you out there listening. So thank you, listeners. I don't know who you are, but seriously, thank you. If you ever see me, IRL, please do come up, say hello, and let me know you are a listener. I promise I'll buy you a drink too. Okay, enough of these sappy goodbyes. I've got exciting news. Two of my former Black Mirror Reflections guests, Shannon Musset from the 15 Million Merits and the Archangel episodes, 
and Ammon Allred from the National Anthem and Hated in the Nation episodes have agreed to co-host an entirely new podcast with me, which will launch on Friday, March 12th, 2021. The name of our new podcast is Hotel Bar Sessions. We decided to name it that because we all agreed that some of the best and most interesting conversations that we have have been at academic conferences. Not in the actual conference sessions per se, although those are often interesting, but at the end of a conference day, when everyone meets at the hotel bar to unwind, debrief, float ideas, chat about whatever they're working on or whatever is interesting to them. So our podcast, Hotel Bar Sessions, is meant to capture exactly that vibe. Now we're pitching a very broad tent, and I anticipate that we will be talking about a ridiculously broad range of topics. So I'm excited to be co-hosting with two very smart and very dear friends who have very different areas of expertise than mine and with whom I disagree about a number of things, but who have exactly zero reservations about calling me on my shit, who always ask provocative and probing questions, and who never take themselves too seriously, despite being, in my estimation, two semi-stable geniuses. But here's a trailer for our new podcast. When you're at an academic conference, it doesn't feel very spontaneous when you're at a paper. It's all very scripted. It's all very planned. But when you're hanging out and you're talking about ideas, it's almost purely spontaneity. I do think that some of my best conversations I've ever had have been at the hotel bar after a session at a conference. I want to have the space to talk about different forms of art and media. I want to have the space to talk about cool books that we're reading. And mostly I want to have the space to try on new ideas. I think what I love about hotel bar sessions is that we are trying on things that will become ideas two or three or four years down the road. Ideas need to ferment. I want us to talk about things that are considered controversial issues. I want to talk about pronouns. I want to talk about cancel culture. I want to talk about academic publishing. I want to talk about a lot of things that I don't think the three of us have fully worked out positions on yet. Yeah, I also think that hotel bar sessions needs to talk about teaching. Yeah, what are we actually doing in our class? Like, how do we actually teach particular things? What are we doing about grading? I want to talk about politics without being a politics podcast. Our social arrangements and the state structures and the governmental structures through which we navigate these things, I want to see them integrated into a broader conversation about culture and philosophy. What is the podcast? What is the essence of the podcast? How is it with the podcast? How does the podcast podcast? How do I end session for all? <laughs> <laughs> You can already subscribe to Hotel Bar Sessions on whatever podcasting service you use. So go ahead and do that right now. You can find us on Facebook on the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast page or on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. Or you can visit our website, hotelbarpodcast.com. Next Friday, March 12th, 2021, we'll be launching our first three episodes on freedom, art, and technology. So one episode each for each of our hosts to talk about something in their wheelhouse. I'll assume that Black Mirror Reflections listeners already know which wheelhouse is mine. See you next week on the new podcast. And for the last time...
You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. 